Welcome to Private Club Radio, the industry's first and only program dedicated to education, news, events, trends and announcements. Broadcasting from Tampa, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Gabriel Aloisi. I hope your day and your week is off to a great start, and I hope it gets even better. The momentum builds after you listen to this episode of Private Club Radio. So happy to be here with you once again. Today, we're going to be joined by Peter Nanula, Chairman of Concert Golf Partners. If you didn't listen to Peter's last appearance on Private Club Radio, episode number 16, definitely recommend you check that one out. It was one of the most listened to episodes in Private Club Radio history. Peter also is joining us monthly for the board chats presented by Concert Golf Partners segment where we're chatting with real life board members. But today, Peter is going to be discussing his top 10 misconceptions, his top 10 myths at private clubs. It is a list chocked full of goodies and some surprises in there. Well, you'll probably want to find out if your club is committing any of these mistakes If they're subscribing to any of these myths, you're going to want to right the ship and get your club back on track. Peter's going to offer his expert advice and provide some solutions to stay away from some of these traps. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. He's up right after these messages. Our webinar series resumes January the 4th with special guest Michael Crandall. Visit privateclubradio.com slash education to register today. Hello there. I have a question for you. How impressed are members with the cleanliness of your club? To attract new members and keep current ones happy, your club must provide the best cleaning and maintenance service possible. Elegance Cleaning Service specializes in country club cleaning. We'll create a custom cleaning program where members can see and actually feel the difference. Don't accept par for the course at your club. Visit clubelegance.net and step up your cleaning game today. Today, we're joined once again by Peter Nanula, chairman of Concert Golf Partners. Peter was recently recognized by Golf Inc. as one of the most influential people in the game, just behind Donald Trump, by the way. Peter's involvement in the club industry dates back to 1993 when he purchased Arnold Palmer Golf Management. With 30 club acquisitions in a seven-year span, he and his team grew that small company into a $100 million revenue-producing owner-operator of clubs nationwide. Arnold Palmer Golf has continued to grow and acquire clubs after Peter's exit in 2000. Currently, Peter heads Concert Golf Partners, which is a boutique collection of upscale private clubs. Concert Golf has a large pool of patient capital, and they use that to recapitalize member-owned clubs that have debt they should pay off and capital projects that they want to invest in. Peter, welcome again to Private Club Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me, Gabe. Peter, were you close with Arnie? Yeah, for for most of the 90s, we were uh, really close. We lived downstairs from Arnie at the Bay Hill Club in Orlando. And so saw him almost every day for the half of the year that he was in Orlando. Well, we know the impact he had on the game of golf. But for you, what was his legacy in terms of what he left behind for the private club industry? Yeah, boy, he had an impact on so many people worldwide. Uh, So we were a very small part of that. I would say he was just such a role model. Um, personally, you meet a lot of people in your career and, and he just had a striking ability to look you in the eye, make you feel like you were the only person that mattered. And he just treated everybody with kindness. And it's, it's, it sounds trite to say that, 
But if we could all just kind of remind ourselves to sort of treat people the way Arnie did, it'd be a, it'd be a lot better place. I think you're right about that. So to begin, can you give folks a background on Concert Golf? Yeah, so Concert Golf Partners is a firm with $150 million of equity capital to invest in upscale private clubs, to preserve them, to enhance them, and to operate them for the long term for the membership. Um, That's what we do. We focus just on the, the upscale private clubs. And what's the state of the club industry as it relates to debt? Yeah, so debt is one issue. Uh, it's not the only issue, but I would say there's a, a surprisingly large number of these private clubs that are carrying very high levels of debt. And I think the reason why this happens is uh, somebody told me a long time ago in business, banks want to lend you money. You shouldn't necessarily take everything they will give you. <laughs> Probably <laughs> and, good and advice. Most- yeah, most private clubs are just trying to get a project funded. And so what's the cheapest, easiest way to get it funded? So they just borrow the most that the bank will give them. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you know, if you've got a house with a mortgage, you got to pay it back and you got to keep paying it back without ever missing a payment. Right. And the problem with clubs is, you know, you have good weather years and bad weather years. You have a recession like 2008. There's a lot of issues that happen in the cyclical club industry that sometimes make those debt service payments a problem. Mm -hmm. And the cash flow going out the door to your bank to make those payments every year is money you can't spend doing the next project at your club. So people really shouldn't borrow as much as they do at most clubs. And, you know, we're, we're trying to help with that problem. I was talking to a friend of mine who is in the um, debt and um, loan industry, and he was saying that back in 2007, a a lot of commercial loans were issued. And I guess here next year in 2017, there's going to be some big balloon payments that are coming due. Um, is that also happening in the private club industry on a curiosity? Yeah, big time. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, loans were made to country clubs by a few national golf lenders, Textron Financial, if you'll remember them, was one of them. Something like $2 billion of golf club mortgages. Well, those those national golf lenders left the industry. They no longer make loans. And they generally would make five or 10-year loans. Right. So when that, when that loan is up, you got to pay the whole thing back. Well, most clubs don't have six or eight million laying around to pay back their bank, so they try to refinance. Mm-hmm. Well, who are you going to refinance it with? If there are no lenders making loans to country clubs, right? So it's it's really a problem. I mean, barring a million or two or three million is generally not a problem for most clubs. Mm-hmm. But the ones who borrow, you know, the metric we use is fifty percent of their revenues or more. So if you've got a club with revenues of six million dollars, borrowing more than three million starts to get you into an uncomfortable zone a few years out. Yeah, how do you see that all shaking out? I think more and more will end up paying down or paying off their debt. Wealthy members will step up and write checks. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like us will contribute equity capital so the clubs can be debt free. Yep. Uh, and I think in the future, they'll be more disciplined by these boards about, you know, not just passing the baton a year later when you roll off the board and hope they can deal with the $6 million loan you just took out. But thinking about a strategic plan. You have a lot of guests on your show who talk about the need for a good long range strategic plan. This is the core part of it, right? How are we capitalized and is it sustainable? 
Right, exactly. The government's been doing that a little bit themselves, right? They're always putting off these uh, policies from year to year, and it's, it's scary. And then one, at some point, the uh, crap is going to hit the fan, right? Exactly. Well, Peter, I know you've put together a list of the top 10 private club misconceptions. Let's dive right into your first misconception, and that's exclusivity. Can you tell folks about your thoughts on that subject of exclusivity? Yeah, I mean, the idea here, Gabe, was, you know, I sit in a lot of private club board rooms every year, and mostly it's a lot of really smart, really accomplished business people from their local community that are contributing you know, lots of great experience to the board of this little co-op, if you will, this this member-owned club organization that everyone volunteers their time to try to help direct. Um, but because those board members are typically not you know, industry experts in the club industry, like a lot of the guests on your show are, yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions and just sort of myths. And I hear them all the time. And so, uh, you know, one of them is the first one you mentioned, the most clubs that we meet with say, we want to keep our initiation fee super high. We want to have a, a very narrow process for sponsoring and accepting new members into the club. Uh, we post the photos, names, and biographies of a potential new member in the lobby for three to six months. We want input from 100 members on whether that person should be admitted. And, and then somebody will tell me a story about how new membership growth hasn't been quite what they hoped this year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we say, well, what, what business do you know? Mm-hmm. Basically repels new, new prospective customers or members like a private club does right right you gotta as you know because you do a lot of private club marketing work at the cutting edge you've got to welcome people you've got to tour them you've got to make them feel like this is a lifestyle they should they should be interested in and you got to roll out the welcome mat not mm-hmm. close the gates up and That's so right. the tendency toward extreme exclusivity and extremely high initiation fee on the door which implies prestige Eh, I think that's kind of an old school notion. Yeah, I think it's definitely changing. But what about, let's talk about the flip side of that. What do you say to clubs who think lowering or even removing initiation fees is going to fix their membership problem? Exactly. That's the opposite uh, side of the coin. Um, And so I would say most clubs we meet with and most clubs we get involved with have engaged in some form of deal a minute or creating a new membership category or set of privilege or price for almost every new prospective member that walks through the door. And, and, you know, one club we're in the middle of recapitalizing now has 42 different membership categories. Oh my goodness. 42. (laughs) So the problem is it's very hard for new members in the market or just the sort of chatter in, in the local club market to make sense of a club it's cut so many deals. Right. I know Gabe, he got in for 11,000. I know another friend who got in for 5,000 down and 3,000 a year for six years. I mean, deals and deals and deals and, and, and clubs need pricing integrity yep. and they need a strong reputation where, you know, every prospective member that looks at the club needs to say there's a value there. The club knows what their value is. And, and and people seem to believe in it. When yeah. you engage in this sort of deal a minute, nothing down, you know, spend a bunch of months here for, for nothing down and just pay dues, you, you're sort of trashing the image and the reputation of your club. 
And you're alienating all those members that actually did put some money down. Precisely. Yeah. It's, it's a scary thing. Once you become a discount house, you really, it's very difficult to, to, to go back. Once you start, you know, selling the farm, it's, it's, it's tough to get that back in the marketplace. Any kind of, well, I'm, I'm proud to say we've gotten involved with a number of the clubs you see on our website. Um, we're down to a zero initiation fee or, you know, half or less what they were charging at the peak. Right. And, and at every one of our clubs, the initiation fee is back up, rising every year, and in some cases higher than it ever was. That's and it's just it's just price discipline, right? And and the the constant marketing to welcome new people in and create demand for your club by making it nicer. And then once you once you get some demand, you cannot you cannot fall prey to the tendency to cut a deal to get somebody in this month. You've got to just say no. It's it's fifteen thousand to join, and if you can't pay, then we'd love to keep meeting with you. But at the point when you can pay, we would love to have you. Right. I actually like the Rolex model. So like every year, Rolex is going to raise their prices two to three percent or something like that, and everybody knows it. <laughs> and so what happens is right before that happens, a lot of people actually purchase because they they want to get it at the at the best rate. So I'd almost like to see some of that something like that happen at some of our clubs. Um, because it really, it instills value and, you know, and you stand behind your product at that point. Yeah. No one questions the, the value and, and prestige of a Rolex. Right. Exactly. Um, all right, well, let's move on to your next one here on the list is clubs often assume that they should tread lightly with banking institutions that they owe money to. In your opinion, Peter, what instead should they do? Yeah, we see this a lot. So you, you borrowed $6 million a bunch of years ago to do that new clubhouse addition or greens renovation project and other things. And now the, you know, half a million dollar a year debt service payment is really choking the club. Now we can't spend more on new projects this year and cash flow is just tight. We need to add more debt dues or assessments to pay for our, uh, our, 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 you know, debt service payments, and uh, we're losing members because of it. So it's just typical. And then we'll go in and meet with them because they're looking for capital options, and we'll try to help educate them about their choices. And I'll say to them, well, you really should talk to your bank about some of the trends with your membership attrition and the trends with your cash flow because the bank is in worse shape here than they think. They think they have a loan to a beautiful club with a lot of rich people in it. So they're going to be fine. Well, if you don't speak to them openly and honestly about the financial status of your club and your membership dynamics, your bank will just assume the place is doing great. Mm -hmm. But if you go in and show them your numbers, show them your membership trends and, and tell them the realities, oftentimes you can either restructure your loan with them or figure out a way to uh, you know, get equity from people like us to pay them off uh, on some better terms, that sort of thing. Just being more honest and upfront with the bank than doing what most clubs we see do, which is which is hide and and have fear of telling their banks the truth. Mm-hmm. Yep, I like that. Now the next one, um, and I've seen this played out in the market a lot, but many clubs think they're competitive with other clubs in their geographical area or their market because they have similar dues and fee structures. Why is that a dangerous assumption, Peter? Yeah, no, this plays out everywhere we go. Our Blue Hill Club in Boston ran right into this. They used to be $11,000 a year for a full golf membership uh, in dues. 
And through a series of capital dues, debt dues, clubhouse dues, you know, all the various reasons why clubs will pass the hat, split the bill 350 ways, all of a sudden you've got a series of extra charges on your bill. They were up to 15800 a year. Well, you know, we have a great golf course. You know, we're an elite club. Well, the truth is, you know, the country club in Brookline and Charles River Club are super elite, you know, 60,000, 100,000 or more to join. Mm-hmm. And their dues are 15 or 16,000 a year. Right. The notion that your club, which had most people paying 11,000 a year in dues for a long period of time, really is directly competitive with those super elite clubs. It's nonsense, right? You're an eleven or $12,000 a year club charging 16000 for your product. How would that work in the world of Rolexes or cars or anything else? It just doesn't work. Right. And so you know, that's one of the most difficult conversations I have with club boards is show me the comparable club sheet and let's look at the pricing. And usually the club has gotten itself priced a little bit out of its true market value. And I like to see clubs just embrace what they really are. Like maybe you're not the most prestigious club. Maybe you're the fun club in town and that's okay too, you know? Yeah. Those are the ones that we see thriving. Yeah. Family, fun, social. Those those are doing the best. Exactly. Exactly. So um, in your opinion, how do you sort of come to the realization of what you are? Would you do a survey? How would you go about kind of finding out what is our club actually all about and who should we be attracting? Yeah, no. Well, this is your this is your world, Gabe. So you know about membership marketing. But um, the the real problem is insularity. If your sole input is uh, ten or fifteen board members sitting around the table deciding what we are, you're missing it already. Right. You've got to get outside people from the club industry or beyond who are you know mystery shopping the other clubs, have experience like you do from multiple markets around the country, fly in do a comparables analysis, visit the other clubs and come back with an assessment of where does this club fit in the market? If you're just listening to yourselves around your own board table, you probably have a distorted view of what your club is. You're absolutely right. I I think it's the complete opposite of that. Like check, ask your market, ask the people who aren't members of your club in your city. What what do you think this club is all about? They're the ones who are really in the best position to tell you. (laughs) So that's great. advice. Yep. Um, there are a lot of clubs out there who believe they're purchasing their course in clubhouse supplies very efficiently. Do you find that's actually true, Peter? Um, never. So what we've heard from vendors is our single most profitable account is a standalone member owned club. We charge them our highest prices and we make the most money on them. And the reason is it's a standalone club. They don't have any purchasing power over multiple facilities. And we have a national account program. We're a volume buyer of everything from seed and fertilizer and chemicals to golf carts and food and liquor and all of that. And in general, we can save between 200000 and 300000 a year buying the exact same products from the same vendor. We just have a different pricing sheet from them because we're a, you know, we're a platinum customer or whatnot. So that's one of the aha moments for the board. They're thinking, wait a minute, for the exact same stuff we're buying on the same truck that unloads, we could save two or $300,000 a year and nothing else changes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a no brainer, yeah. but they'll ask their general manager, go out and get some good deals for us. And the problem is your general manager or your controller can, can be really savvy 
But if they're not buying for 10, 15, 100 clubs, there's no way that they're going to get the deals that we get. Right. Exactly. And to be quite frank, there's probably other things that maybe their time would be better served anyways, right? Exactly. Keeping yeah. the members happy or what have you. <laughs> um, yeah. How about in, in specifically, how about superintendents, Peter? Yeah. You mean uh, on the purchasing side? Right. Um, yeah. A lot of the savings is in the agronomy area. So seed, fertilizer, uh, chemicals, uh, maintenance equipment. Um, you know, this, the superintendents are, are, you know, scientifically sound, smart, really understand the biggest asset of a club, the golf course, but their ability to purchase sitting out in the maintenance yard is just whatever they can get a vendor to, you know, sell it to them for. Whereas when we say we're going to buy all of our seed from you across, you know, a hundred million dollars a year of, of golf club activity. Mm-hmm. That vendor takes out his pricing sheet and gives us a radically different deal than even a really prestigious club with a top-notch superintendent could could hope to get. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, every club also thinks their superintendent is God's gift and they have the best greens and all that. What would you say about that misconception, Peter? Yeah, that's one of the biggest misconceptions we see. And and sometimes there are sort of rock star superintendents who are creative and do amazing work uh, in the agronomy area with some difficult grasses and, and weather conditions. And they have a very deserved reputation. Um, but I would say over half of the board meetings I go into the board members who all come from business or, you know, medical or lawyers or some other sort of background, they might be really good golfers and love the club and love their golf course. But in truth, most of them don't have in-depth knowledge about agronomy or the science of it. And so when a good superintendent comes in, you know, every month and talks about his budget or his equipment needs or whatnot, most boards don't really know what that person is talking about, truth be told. And so the answer is more than half of these boards will say, we have the single best superintendent in the state. And then we go in there with our team of agronomists, work side by side with that superintendent. Golf course conditions get better. We save $100,000 a year on purchasing. And people say, wow, what did you guys do? And the answer is just more eyes and ears, more experience, and getting away from this silo mentality of one club, one person, and that's our only perspective on our golf course or our dues or any of that. Right. How about clubs who believe they're attracting top talent? You sort of alluded to this with the superintendents, but in general, I think clubs think they're attracting top talent across the board. I know you believe it's many times a fallacy. How instead would you recommend they go about hiring the right folks, Peter? Yeah. So, so, you know, normally the clubs we meet with are among the top clubs in town. So they're prestigious. The, well, the, the members are affluent. Uh, the, the golf course has hosted major, you know, sort of USGA caliber events. And so they presume from the boardroom, we're one of the most prestigious institutions in our whole town. So we're probably getting the best, the best labor force, the best people applying for jobs, because this is a really elite place in our city. And some of that is true. Um, on the other hand, if it's a standalone silo club, um, there's not a lot of upward mobility for most of that staff. Uh, there's not a lot of accountability. The board is part-time, volunteer, non-experts in the business. So who's really spending time with those staff members aside from the general manager? Are they getting other input from experts in their field? Um, it, it's, it's 
in, in many cases viewed as kind of a dead end and they cannot attract the same caliber of hospitality professionals that a group like ours that's sort of multi-club in size, always growing for superstars. They can move up, become a regional manager of X, or they can go oversee the agronomy with similar grasses over two or three clubs. There's a, there's a sort of upward arc to people's career path with a group like us versus a standalone club who, who keeps trying to sell the exclusivity and prestige of their location. Uh, but the staff sees it as a little bit of a dead end. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now for what would be your best tip, you know, in terms of hiring the right people? Do you have any, any top ones? Cause I know you've hired some, some pretty good folks out there. Yeah. I mean, we're not perfect and we're always trying to get better. And, and the whole sort of HR area, it's gotta be everyone's top focus because it's all about the people, right? It's not just the service you provide. Um, but at a club, we all know that the members really bond with the staff and become part of a sort of family at the club. So it's all about the people. And I would say we just try to cast the net wider. Um, We try to do job fairs more broadly. We try to get people from different backgrounds. It wouldn't necessarily just be from other clubs in town, Mm -hmm. hotels, restaurants, um, you know, tourism, hospitality of all kinds you find a lot of people with with sort of great mentalities in all those areas. They can be taught the club business and the nuances of being at a private club, but it's really hard to replicate somebody with that bright, shining personality who really loves to serve people. Right. And so yeah. casting a wider net really helps. I like that, getting into different markets. That's, that's good. Now, after that, that great round on the best greens in town, um, most people walk into their club's 19th hole or their grill room or their fine dining restaurant and they think that they've got the best food in town as well so why is that a misconception peter yeah well sometimes they do they've hired the superstar chef and that's pretty impressive to board members that we got so and so from this fancy five-star restaurant in town uh and that sounds pretty cool and sometimes it works um oftentimes it doesn't you've got now uh, somebody who is used to running maybe a restaurant with star power and so the way that restaurant in town, you know, draws customers in is through a very specific, you know, sort of flair or menu or what have you. And, and that worked downtown. But at a club, you know, you've got all the different day parts at a club. You've got very casual, you know, I just played four hours worth of golf and I want to come in and get a burger and a beer. And some chefs will say, geez, that, that's not why I'm here. That's not why I became a chef. And so a club is a really different environment where you've got to meet, you know, you got to meet kids by the pool. You've got to meet uh, casual, you know, informal dining outside. And then there may be some very upscale Friday, Saturday night kind of dining that goes on. It's a great fit for your chef. But what about those all those other points that we have to serve in our business for food and beverage? So we try to make a better fit with all the different needs, somebody who's much more flexible somebody who can respond to the needs of the membership um, uh, and isn't just sort of moonlighting at the club while they're tending to their sort of high-end restaurant. Mm, Yeah. Yep. That's right. Now the prospect of money making is fairly taboo in our industry. Should clubs start to rethink that? Yeah. uh, This is probably the biggest gulf that I find when I'm meeting with clubs. They'll, They'll say, well, we're a nonprofit, 501c7. 
right? We're not here to make money. We're like our local HOA. Um, how could you possibly make money in the business where we're we're struggling so much? And frankly, wouldn't that come at our at our expense of of the experience we have here? And this is this is the biggest misconception of all, right? If you think about your favorite hotel in Tampa, or your favorite couple of restaurants in North Tampa where you live, are they nonprofits? No, nope. not a single one of them, right? They, they they spend a lot of money to build out that restaurant or hotel, and they've got to make some money in order for you know that to be a viable business. Same for us. Um, so. We're in the business of making money. These are for-profit operations like a great hotel or restaurant, and it doesn't happen by sacrificing quality. In fact, if quality goes down, your members complain, don't want to pay their dues and leave. That's really bad. So what we generally find is you know, better service, better food, better golf course conditions, members get happier, tell their friends, and we have a thriving business. So the opposite of most people's fears happen when we arrive, quality goes up uh, or else we wouldn't have a very good business. And, you know, we're constantly getting 95, 100 percent votes from memberships that consider this option after they've called our references, visited our other clubs and realized, wow, the members here are really happy. The food's gotten better since they arrived. The golf course conditions have gotten better since they arrived. I don't know if those people are making money, but boy, the members are happy. That's, that's <laughs> basically the punchline we hear everywhere. I love it. That's a good. That's a good punchline to have. Yeah, absolutely. Now, last misconception here is that most boards think they're doing a great job at long-range planning. What are some of the ways they may actually be missing out? Yeah, I would say this is a trend that a lot of your consultants and kind of industry leaders that you have on your show are making strides in forcing boards to create a strategic long range plan so that when people come on and off the board, the priorities don't shift dramatically and people don't get off, get off the plan. So I think it's, it's trending in the right direction, but I would still say compared to, you know, fortune 500 companies or even smaller businesses that have, you know, capital invested in them and have business goals. I would say the strategic planning at private clubs is still, operates at the very low end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's still a lot of whipsawing. You know, the new board president is a two handicapper. So we are now going to spend huge amounts of money redoing greens and bunkers because that particular person and a couple people on the greens committee like this form of golf course architecture and don't like that form of golf course architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. We just did a five or 10 year plan that said, we redid our greens, you know, five years ago, and we got all these issues with casual dining, with women's locker room, with, you know, all these other issues. And just because we had a new board get elected with some new priorities, now we've whipsawed back over to redoing our bunkers and greens six years after we just redid them. Right. That's crazy. Right. You would never see that at a company uh, in any other business. So um, I would say we end up spending a lot of time with boards talking about these strategic planning issues, where they're going to get their capital from, which capital projects make sense, and and how are they serving the needs of all their members as opposed to a you know rotating list of sort of niche priorities of the latest board members who rolled on. And generally speaking, they say, you know, you're right. This isn't at all like the boards that I sit on as a person in business. We need 
governance that is long-term, strategic, well-funded, and we don't have this crisis every three to five years where we're passing the hat amongst 300 people and changing our priorities. Yeah, and that also has to do with longevity, I would think, of you know boards that have people that just sit on the board for a year and then it's a revolving door. I think that they're they're in much more trouble too. Exactly. No, sometimes some of the best board members are really sharp and can have really engaging conversations with you and me who've been in this industry a long time. And they've been on the board for, you know, a couple of years now, and they've really come up the learning curve fast. They've read outside materials, et cetera. Oh, well, I'm rolling off in November. Oops. What happened to the institutional memory of this club? They're probably most valuable player on that board is about to leave. And all that knowledge just went out the door and a brand new person is starting up. That's one of general managers' biggest frustrations that I hear. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> well, Peter, how do folks find out more about Concert Golf or get in touch with you and your partners there? Yeah, the best way is just go to our website, concertgolfpartners.com. I'm reachable by phone and email and all of that. And you know, we routinely are just doing you know, sort of free strategy consulting over the phone with a lot of these clubs just to inquire about their issues and seeing how we can help. What we can do is we can inject capital into their club and put it on a solid long-term footing. But if they're not interested in that or we're not interested in that particular club, we try as hard as we can to direct them to, frankly, some of the people on your show who are real niche experts in their fields. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some great ones. Really honored to have some of the guests we've had on here. Thank you so much, Peter. It's great as always to chat with you and uh, hope you have a good rest of your day, man. Yeah. Thanks. Love your show. Great insights as always from Peter there. Hope to see you back here next Monday for another edition of Private Club Radio. And until then, here's to your membership success. Just because this round is over doesn't mean you can't enjoy the 19th hole. Check out privateclubradio.com for more. Private Club Radio is brought to you by the Private Club Agency, the premier marketing and consulting firm dedicated to helping clubs increase and retain their membership. Visit privateclubagency.com to learn more.